Amen and good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them up and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. It's where we'll be spending our time today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. And uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I would love the opportunity to get to know you. Uh, I'm usually up front after service, and uh, it would mean a lot to me, uh, once again, if you are new or newer, or we haven't even met yet, to come up uh, and introduce yourself. Um, last year, right after Easter, we started going through a series um, in the first two chapters of Acts in an attempt to define what I called the basics. Like anything in life, churches that are productive and effective and healthy do the basics very well. And then after that series, we left Acts and we went to explore other portions of Scripture and we visited some other things. And uh, I think we left for good reason and God certainly used our time. Um, but ever since we left Acts chapter 2, I have always had this longing, this desire, this hunger to return to the book of Acts. Throughout the second half of all last year, I uh, just had this strange thirst that wasn't quenched. I felt like God had more for us from the book, and so I would like to go back uh, to, to Acts. And through much prayer and consideration, I've decided that as a church, we're going to go, we're going to travel through the entire book of Acts together as a church uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, this is a little bit of a cultural shift for us. Typically, we've done series that only last a month or a couple months, three months at most, when we're preaching through text. And uh, as I mapped this out, Acts is going to take us uh, this entire year and even a good portion of next year as well. Um, now, don't worry, we will take breaks. Uh, there will be other preachers that come and share other portions of, of Scripture. Um, so I, I hope not to belabor the point, but our main diet for this year and uh, some of next year will be this book of Acts. Um, th this book is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke, if you're unfamiliar with it. It's like a second volume to Luke's story of Jesus, but it recounts everything that happened uh, to that first church after Jesus ascended into heaven. In the very first verse of Acts, uh, Luke talks about writing to a man named Theophilus that has inquired about Jesus and who Jesus is, and that was the purpose of him writing his gospel account. And then in the very first verse of Acts, he begins writing, in the first book, O Theophilus, he's referring to the gospel, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Uh, this implies that even though Jesus has ascended, Jesus' work isn't finished yet. It's just begun. In a sense, yes, his work is finished. His work of redemption on the cross is finished. He said it was finished, but the mission has just started. There's more to do. In a sense, if the book of Luke is was written, if, if Luke describes in his gospel all that Jesus began to do and teach, we can assume that the book of Acts describes what he continues to do and teach through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so essentially what we're going to look at in Acts is how this is, functions as a blueprint 
for how a holy and separated group of people that we call the church, how the church pursues the lost world in mission. It's a missional book about the message of Jesus Christ going out into the nations. Now, now when I say the word missional, I know, that, I know what some of you may be thinking. You may think that being missional is reserved for a certain type of people that are called. It is a certain type of person that is called overseas somewhere, and I can participate in this. I can be missional by sending them money, by praying for them regularly, and by reading their email updates. Now, while that is important, and we should support our formal missionaries, to say that that is my involvement in mission, and it's limited to only that, is frankly a cop-out. Because the Great Commission that Jesus gave his followers, his disciples, those who believe in him to go and make all nations isn't a calling for a select few, but rather a mandate for all believers. If you sit here this morning and you are a believer, you are on mission. You are called. I want you to see yourselves as missionaries in your own right. Not necessarily overseas, but missionaries in the very place that God has placed you, in the very time that you are in right now. Once again, if you are a believer, you are obligated to live a missional life. It's been written that you are called to leverage your life for the sake and the spread of the gospel. And if you are obligated to live a missional life, then we as a church body and we as church leaders are obligated to equip you for your mission, to send you out fully armed. There's a pastor named J.D. Greer who's greatly influenced me on this, and and I'm working through a book right now with other area pastors from our district and the Alliance called Gaining by Losing. And in this book, uh, Greer writes that we need a fundamental shift in how we think about the church. He says that the church needs to operate with the assumption that everyone is called And this will dramatically change how we do church. And Greer uses an illustration that I, that I, that I've liked and so I'm going to share. He, he likens how churches operate to three different types of ships. He explains that some people view the church like a cruise liner. And the only purpose of this church as a cruise liner is to offer up Christian luxuries for the whole family. It has an amazing children's ministry. The music is entertaining and the preacher is good looking and hilarious, right? This is the type of church that strictly seeks to fill the felt needs of its people, to satisfy its people. And we need to avoid functioning like this kind of church because this church is only out to make people happy, right? There's a second ship that Greer brings up, and he, he talks about churches that serve as a battleship. He writes that this church was made for mission, but it's the church institution itself that does most of the fighting. It's, it's the programs, and it's the ministry, and it's the pastors that do the ministry. In this type of model, 
the role of the church member is simply to just find the ministry leaders to go do the work of ministry on our behalf. It's a, let's pay the pastors, let's bring our friends, and then we don't have to share the gospel with them. We don't have to do ministry because our pastors do that for us. This is the battleship. It's the ministries and the programs uh, are, are the primary instruments of mission. However, there is a third ship that Greer says all churches should strive to be like, and that is an aircraft carrier. He writes that like battleships, aircraft carriers engage in battle, but differently. Aircraft carriers equip planes and then send them out to fight the battle where the enemy is prevailing. He, he, he wants churches to send out its people to go to the front lines where evil is prevailing to do battle, to do ministry. I want to read an excerpt from his book in regards to this. I've got the words up on the screen behind me. He writes this, Churches that want to prevail against the gates of hell must learn to see themselves like aircraft carriers, not like battleships, and certainly not like cruise liners. Members need to learn to share the gospel without the help of the pastor in the community and start ministries and Bible studies, even churches in places without them. Churches must become discipleship factories, sending agencies that equip their members to take the battle to the enemy. I think, I know, as we journey through the book of Acts, you will come to find that a church that functions as an aircraft carrier is a biblical model. And so I am going to bang the missional drum all year long in hopes that we would take the message of Jesus Christ, this good news to Erie and beyond, not just within these four walls, but as a group of people that go out that are sent. And through this, we're going we're gonna to start in chapter 3. I don't feel the need to retread chapter 1 and 2. I'll give you a brief summary after we read those verses. Uh, but if you would like to catch up from our series last year where we addressed Acts 1 and 2, those sermons are still available online. And I would encourage you as we travel through Acts to uh, keep up, so to speak. Uh, the, the story of Acts is a narrative. And so if you were to miss sermons, you would miss episodes. Uh, it would be like watching a TV show and skipping over episodes and then scratching your head thinking, wait a minute, how did we get here? What's happening? I don't understand the context. And so once again, if you miss a week, uh, it will be hard to keep up with the narrative. And we would encourage you to, to, to keep up online should you miss uh, any of the weeks. And so let's go to God's Word together in Acts chapter 3. I'll read the first 10 verses and then I'll pray and then we'll use the remaining uh, time to study what God would have for us today. This is what it says in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word now, we ask by the power of your spirit that we would understand what you would want us to know. Just as you transformed this man's life, would you transform our lives through the teaching and preaching of your word? Would you transform our heart? Would you transform our mind? Would you transform our spirit? Would you transform our bodies to be, um, to, to, to be glorifying to you, Father? Would you create in us what you intended us at your original creation? And in your holy name I pray, amen. By way of recap, if you're unfamiliar with the first two chapters of Acts, we find at the very beginning Jesus is meeting with his disciples, his followers, and he commissions them and he equips them to be sent out in order to share the gospel, and then he ascends into heaven. Before Jesus leaves, though, he promises to give them the Holy Spirit, which would provide them the power necessary to do his work. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does come on the apostles, and the Holy Spirit fills them, and Peter begins to preach to the masses. And then by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, thousands, about 3,000 people come to know Jesus and join the church and then you're forced to ask the question, what do you do with 3,000 new believers? Well, you do the basics, and you do the basics very well. You teach them how God would want the church. And so at the end, very end of Acts chapter 2, you get this kind of overall picture of what the church was doing and how they functioned, what the basics were as a, a church, what community life looked like. Uh, to this point, Luke, the author of Acts, has only written about ministry in a very general sense. He's taking a broad look at uh, how the church has done ministry, but for the first time in chapter 3, we have a specific moment involving a specific man. As Peter and John, who are disciples, apostles of Jesus, are entering the temple, they're going in at, at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon for a scheduled time of corporate prayer, and they come across a lame man. Now, this definition of lame has changed over the years. What it's basically saying is the man was handicapped. He couldn't walk, and he's begging for money. This is immediately a scene that we can relate to. If you've ever walked the streets of downtown Pittsburgh or downtown Cleveland, this scene is etched into your memory of those in need looking for some kind of help. I mean, we can relate to what Peter and John are doing right now and what they experience as they walk by this man looking for some money. And the text actually tells us a little bit more about this lame beggar man. It shows us how severe this condition really is. And first, we understand that this condition is all he's ever known because he was lame from birth. 
It wasn't an accident that put him uh, in this condition, but it's something that he's dealt with his entire life. He knows absolutely nothing of the splendor of being able to run or leap or dance because he could never walk. Second, we see how bad his condition really is as we read that he was carried to this particular spot every day. Perhaps a handicapped man, although struggling, could still make do, but this guy couldn't. He relied on somebody else to come and pick him up every single day and to place him in, the, in this particular spot. And so not only has this man known, uh, never known anything else, but he can't do anything about it. He's helpless. And third, we see how severe this is uh, because of the duration and the severity of the condition. He is financially dependent on whatever he can collect at the temple gate. And because of his condition, there is no other way to gain income uh, other than desperate pleas. Can you imagine the darkness and hardship that surrounds this man's life? He is utterly helpless and hopeless. He has no joy from the past and nothing to live for in the future because this is his life. It's the hands of cards that he's been dealt. It's how it's always been and it's how it always will be. He knows nothing other than brokenness and poverty. And then... By God's good grace, something amazing happens. Something amazing happens. In verse 3, the lame man calls out to Peter and John who are walking into the temple and asks them for money. And then we read in verse 4 that Peter and John directed their gaze at the man and said, hey, look at us. Look at us. You've got to appreciate Peter and John who have enough compassion on this man that they stop in their very tracks to give him focused attention. Once again, remember that they were on their way into the temple for a time of scheduled corporate prayer. Peter and John had a destination. They had somewhere to be and they had a time that they had to, to go there, yet they take the time to stop. How many times do we miss opportunities in our life to do ministry, to show the love of Jesus, to share the message of Jesus, because I've got somewhere to be, because I'm too caught up with my schedule. I'm looking into my, my, my future, and I'm saying what's happening ahead of me is more important than what's happening right now. What do I have to get done? This is a painful reminder for me because it it uh, reminds me of one time, an occasion, driving to church on a Sunday morning when I had a full to-do list waiting for me. I had a full morning of ministry to do, right, as a youth pastor. And uh, on the way to church, the roads were slick from a fresh snowfall. And I came across a car that was desperately trying to drive out of a snowbank and without hesitation, I sped right by him because I had something to do. I had a place to go. I had ministry to do. I can't help this guy out because I've got ministry to be done. 
I was so caught up in my own to-do list that I missed a perfect ministry opportunity. And I've learned the hard way over the years that oftentimes it's the interruptions that are the ministry. We grow contempt because of our schedule. Even more so in the story of Acts, we know that it would have been easy for the masses to grow contempt towards this beggar man because he was at the gates every day. Think about this. Later on in the passage, in verse 9 and 10, we find that everybody in the vicinity of this event knows and recognizes this man as the one who sits and asks for money every day. It would be like walking down the street and the people saying, oh, there's that beggar man again. There he is, like clockwork, every single day asking for money. You can always count on this beggar man to be out there at the temple gates looking for another buck. In contempt, it would not be surprising if thousands of people passed him every day without a single morsel of compassion. Even if they did give him money, they probably just dropped it in his cup without even missing a single step. They would give it to him in stride as we often do, right? And and without offering even a look of compassion, because if they did, they'd be obligated to act, right? If I see him, then I'm obligated to do something, right? This is a silly illustration, but it reminds me of going to Mill Creek Mall, especially during the holiday time, when there are certain salesmen and saleswomen in those pop-up kiosks in the middle of the walkway, that approach you. You know what I'm talking about. And every single time my wife and I go and we're walking and I see one of those coming down the stretch, I'll turn to my wife and I'll say, just don't make eye contact. (laughs) Because if you make eye contact, then they're going to ask you something or they're going to tell you something and then you're obligated to respond. And I don't want to respond because I've got somewhere to do and I'm not going to buy whatever it is you're trying to sell me. And so I just want to keep going because you are going to be an inconvenience to me. I may be the bad guy, but I know you do it too. You feel the same way. (laughs) So how profound is it in verse 4 when we read that Peter and John, who had a place to be and a time to be there, stood and set their gaze at him and said, look at us. Look at us. Peter and John recognized that this man is an image bearer, that he was created in the image of God and has value. Even though he is broken and poor and has nothing to offer, they give him the dignity that comes with being made in the image of God. And so let's ask a difficult question. How do I react to those that are broken? How do I react to those that are poor? How do I react to those that are different than me? You will never be able to minister to those in which you have no compassion for. Peter and John have compassion on this man, and it drives them to provide for him in kind of an unconventional way. 
The lame man sees how they respond to him and they, he expects to receive something from them and he realizes that they're going to give him some money. And so you can imagine the disappointment for the beggar when one of the first things that Peter says is, hey man, we don't have any silver and gold. We don't have any money to offer you. But then there's a glimmer of hope when he continues, we don't have money, but we do have something else and we're willing to give it to you. And then Peter, in a powerful way, in an authoritative way, says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And then you see this play out where Peter reaches down to the man and grabs his right hand and hoists him up. And the man can stand on his own strength. He can bear weight on the strength of his feet and ankles. And he's not like wobbling around, trying to figure out how to get his sea legs out from under him. No, in verses 8 and 9, we see five different times that this man is described as either walking or even leaping. This man is dancing in the streets of Jerusalem. He is leaping for joy as if he's done it his entire life. He has been restored to what he was originally designed to be able to do. And he's loving every second of it. And if you think through this, you'll realize that the ramifications of his legs being restored are life-changing. This man now has a new life. From a physical standpoint, his life has been changed. He no longer has to live in the pain of the past. He now has a future ahead of him. He no longer needs to rely on people to carry him here nor there. He can now walk on his own. He no longer needs to beg for money because he now has the ability to work and earn an income. Sure, gold and silver could buy his next meal but now he can work and earn every meal. He now has the ability to live life, life to the fullest. But I don't want to miss an important point, something that's tucked away in the passage and easy to miss, that not only has his life changed physically, but it also has changed spiritually in a very symbolic way. His status in relation to God has changed. You see, in that context, the temple was the place to properly worship and pray to God. In that time, in Judaism, if you wanted to properly worship God, you had to go to the temple. To be in the temple, essentially, was to be in God's presence. And if you were to turn to 2 Samuel 5, 8, you would find that the lame were not allowed to enter the temple which is why this man is sitting at the gates and not in the temple. He's figuring out, I can expose my need to the thousands without going into the temple, but he's healed now. He's walking around. He's leaping up and down. And in verse eight, we read that he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them. He can now go in the temple and he does. 
This is a symbolic moment that points to the fact that he was not just physically healed, but he is also spiritually healed. Just as his physical status is transformed, his spiritual status is transformed as he praises God within the temple gates for the very first time in his life. It's a beautiful event. And it happened at a place that's called the beautiful gate. One historian suggests that the gate was called beautiful because it was made from pure bronze and it was heavily decorated. And it suggested that this particular gate was larger than any of the other gates and held more value than any of, of, of the other gates in the temple. And so once again, imagine this lame man who comes to this extravagant gate every single day. And he looks up at the gate and he sees the value and he sees the value of treasure and he sees the value of money and he sees the value of the gold and the silver and he thinks that this will solve all his problems. If I can just get more gold and silver, then all of my problems will be fixed. Does it sound a little familiar? But there's a contrast in the story between what the man thought he needed and what he really needed. Peter tells the man, I have no gold and silver. Basically, I am not going to give you what you think you need, what you think the solution is, but I've got something better. I've got something that will fill a need that you didn't even realize you had. And the beggar man didn't even ask uh, for, for what Peter gave him because he thought the solution came from somewhere else. His mind was preoccupied with a lesser need. I think the same is true of us. As you sit here today, you may think you know what you need, but the desires of your heart and the pure groaning of your spirit runs way deeper than you even realize. You have a deep spiritual hunger that you may not even realize you have nor realize can be filled. Just like this lame beggar man. When Peter is talking to the lame man, he tells him, I don't have silver and gold. I don't have what you're asking for, but I will give you something else something better, something greater. And Peter gives it to the man and this man gets up and walks. Peter is in possession of something that has just empowered this lame man from birth to get up and walk. That in and of itself should cause you to sit there and marvel and say, I want some of that. I'll have what Peter's having because that's amazing. Well, what is this wonderful thing that Peter is in possession of? Acts 1.8 is helpful in this regard. Right before Jesus ascends to heaven, I alluded it to, to it before, but we'll look at it intently now. The, the disciples ask Jesus when he's coming back. And in verse 7, Jesus tells them that's not for them to know. He basically says, hey, that's none of your business. But until that day, until the day I come back, 
here's what's going to happen. I am going to provide for you. And he's t- this is where Acts 1-8 comes into play. Jesus talking to his disciples says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does Peter have that he gives to the beggar man? He has the transforming power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, would come and dwell within them and give them power. And Peter has that power and he uses it. And this is why Peter evokes the name of Jesus when he speaks to this man. He stands there and says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. This is Peter saying that this healing, this transforming power is not my own power. I'm powerless without this. Without This This is actually Jesus's power. I'm merely tapping in to the same power that raised Jesus up from the dead. He was, he was dead. He was in the grave. And then there was a power, a great power that resurrected him. And that's the type of power that I'm going to use to heal this man. And Peter's saying, this is all Jesus. <laughs> This isn't me. I'm just tapping into his power. He understands that it's Jesus who has healed him. And the lame man gets that. Because you would think he would go on and tell everybody about Peter and John and that he'd praise Peter and John. But in verse 8, he's not praising Peter and John. He's praising God. He has a full understanding that it was indeed Jesus who healed him. Once again, Peter is powerless without the work of Jesus. And it's critical in our modern day understanding of ministry that we are powerless in our labor without the work of Jesus. We could have the best programs, the sharpest sermons, and the most robust budget, and it would all be in vain if we don't rely on the power of Jesus in our ministry. It would be so easy as a church to look at our budget numbers week in and week out and be frustrated that we don't have more. It would be easy to fall into that trap uh, that dreams of having more money or more programs or more volunteers or more staff because just think of the ministry we could do if we just had resources. Think of the ministry that we could do if we just had more. And if this passage teaches us anything, we don't need gold and silver. All we need is the power of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Our dependence on these things, these resources as a church needs to decrease. And our dependence on the power of Jesus must become greater. Because church, we have so much more to offer to a lost world than gold and silver. We have the power, and not just the power, but the authority of Jesus. There is authority in Jesus' name. Just like uh, uh, the uh, legal power of attorney document that gives you the authority to act on behalf of somebody else's name. 
the mark of the Holy Spirit gives us as believers the authority to do ministry in Jesus' name. And so with this in mind, in light of this whole miracle in these short 10 verses, I have two quick points of application, one for the unbeliever and one for the believer. First, to the unbeliever, if you sit in this room and have not put your faith and trust in Jesus and in his power, I want you to reconsider. Reconsider the fact that through Jesus' power, this lame beggar man's life was changed. It was transformed for good. If I could summarize what this passage means, it's showing us that this first miracle by Peter and John shows how Jesus can give new life. Jesus can still transform. You can have the transforming power of Jesus in your life when you submit to him. And if you submit to him, Jesus will fill needs in your life that are far beyond what you even thought you needed. And all you have to do is turn to him and say, Jesus, would you forgive me for how I've rejected you and submit to him as Lord and Savior? I promise you, you will never regret that decision. It's the first point of application. Number two, to the believers in this room, to those of you who have already put your faith in Jesus, not only does this first miracle from Peter and John show that Jesus can give new life, but it also shows that Jesus now works through representatives. If you are a believer, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are a representative of Jesus. You are his continued ministry, and you have been equipped with his power. And so don't bother waiting or relying on others to do the ministry of Jesus because you have everything you need in the Holy Spirit to go to your workplace, to go to your school, to go to your community and share the message of Jesus and share the love of Jesus in the name of Jesus. A powerful, beautiful name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray as we enter into 2020 that... FAC, this group of local believers that have gathered under one roof would, would go away from this building and understand that the ministry doesn't happen here. This is merely home base that equips. I pray, Lord, that we would go about with a spirit of ministry into our community, into our workplace, into our school, and, and, and share the love and the message of Jesus there that we would fight the battlefront, that we would fight the battle where the gates of hell are prevailing. I ask, Father, that you would light under us a spirit of passion to tell a very lost and dark world about the light, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for our offering as we collect it that you would bless it, Lord. How convicting it is to know how much we rely so much on funds that come in to do ministry. Father, I pray that in our hearts we would come before you uh, with, a, with a pure heart and a pure dependence on Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would use this offering 
to make your name known and to make it great. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't be distracted by what this offering can do, but we would use it for your glory. Let us go to Christ for our power and our resource. I thank you, Lord, for including us in your mission. It brings glory to your name, Father, and I pray that we would bring glory to your name through everything that we do. And in your holy name I pray, amen.